I'm Chad. And I'm Cheese. And we are the Chad and Cheese Podcast. Our podcast covers news, startups, AI, automation, programmatic, and all the things the kids are excited about. (laughs) And then we drown it with a healthy dose of snark, attitude, and four-letter words. Subscribe to the Chad and Cheese Podcast today wherever you listen to your podcasts. Look, I know. You really enjoy this podcast. You really enjoy the sound of my voice. You really enjoy the blah, blah, blah that stems out of it, talking about the employer brand, world function, space, and uh, (laughs) tasks at hand. I I appreciate that. I really do. But I also know that when it comes to the world of podcasting, I am, well, how do you say, not the biggest fish in this particular pond. And in fact, if I had to talk about who the biggest and or best fish in the recruitment, recruitment marketing, HR podcast landscape is, it's probably, if I have to admit, and the ego part of me doesn't want to, but if I have to admit, it's talk talent to me. Obviously, Rob Stevenson and Hired have done an amazing job putting together a fabulous set of interviews. And and, and honestly, Rob's a great interviewer. I don't think he would say that about himself. Um, I think he, 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 much like me, would downplay his own ability in that space, but I think he does a fabulous job interviewing people. Why am I starting a podcast this, this way? Well, because it's funny. I wanted to be on the podcast, and turns out Rob's kind of a fan of what I do, and so we're, you know, have a mutual admiration society. And so we talked about how do we, I don't know, be on each other's podcasts. And we thought, do we do two separate podcasts? Do I interview him? Does he interview me? And unlike him, I am an atrocious interviewer, as you all know, or should know if you've listened to some of my very early episodes. And so what we came upon was the idea of doing something akin to a split single. Now, for those of you who don't remember, a split single was way back when you didn't have music as a function of downloads or as a function of bits, but as a function of grooves pressed into plastic and what would happen is a punk band usually a punk band sometimes an indie band whatever would say i can't quite afford my own single with two songs so i'm gonna do one song on one side and i'm gonna let my friend do another song on the other side and that way we can kind of help each other and defray the cost and all that good stuff and so that was kind of the spirit in which rob and i kind of approached this strange experiment so what we have here after the music and the intro uh is a is the first part of an interview of Rob and I just, to be fair, calling an interview is absolutely the wrong word, but it is a rambling, goofy conversation about all things employer brand and recruitment marketing, the industry and COVID and what's going to happen next and where do we go and how does this all work and what has he heard? What do I heard? You know, what do I think? All that good stuff. And it's only the first half. So it's about a 25 minute episode. If you like the conversation, there's more. And trust me, Rob gets funnier as he gets along. So I think he's drinking the whole way through. I can't confirm that. Uh, but that's my suspicion. I, of course, stick to caffeine. Anyway, uh, so when we get right back, we're going to start to talk, hear the, uh, the rambling conversation that is Rob and James talking about stuff. Welcome to the Talent Cast, the world's most caffeinated employer brand podcast. I'm your host, James Ellis. And I've been doing employer brand for years now, and I absolutely love the industry. I love how it's growing. I love how it's changing. 
and I've tried to do my part to elevate the concept, to get everybody to understand the power employer brand can have in hiring, attracting, and retaining talent. So we try to really focus on driving home the idea that this is a calling and a craft. It's a lot of getting your hands dirty, but it's also a lot of big strategic thinking. And that's where we kind of live, that kind of uh, Venn diagram, the intersection between those the big ideas and the getting the details right. So we talk a lot about employer brand and how to do it right and how to think about it and how to look at your problems in a whole new way. Ready to rock? One, two, three, let's go. All right, so yes, housekeeping, blah, 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 webinars in the show notes, blah, 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 newsletter, show notes, blah, 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 book, show notes, go buy it, all that good stuff. And one little caveat, as it were, and I say caveat instead of caveat, as if to say I went to college, um, but my microphone apparently sounded really horrible. It's Rob's setup. Um, he's got a nicer setup than I do, uh, and apparently my mic did not sound as good as his does, so music, the audio quality is not as good. So with that, here we go. Three, two, one. Hit it, Rob. I'm recording now, so we can we can begin stumbling through this at any moment, James. Uh, I believe we already have. Oh, it's already begun. Uh, it's begun. So we are two podcasters, <laughs> and in multiple cups. Let's just put that yes. right out there at the beginning. I knew you were going to say that. I, as soon as it came out of my mouth, I regretted teeing you up for that. Uh, <laughs> uh, but so I'm used to interviewing other people. You're used to more monologuing. Yeah, I'm a horrible interviewer. Okay, so how do, how do we do this? How do we do this in a way that provides value? This? Let's just kick it off with this question. Um, okay. We have one of two questions. We have two things we're going to try and kick around and, and, and fumble around with. One is things that aren't working well in the industry, and the other is what the heck happens after, right? What happens when the pandemic is over, when the lockdown is over, when we're all free to go back to our normal, quote, air quotes, lives uh, and work and jobs, what happens then? How did this change? How did this impact? Pull out your crystal ball. Tell me what the future looks like. So let's just start there, actually. Rob, you get to talk to all these amazing, smart people. You get to have great conversations. You record only some of it, I'm sure. What is the perception? What is your perspective on how does this all change? What does this all mean? Yeah, so what I'm hearing from people is they're beginning this back to work planning. And I've heard this from a few different individuals from small startups to enterprise level companies. They get in these meetings about what does back to work look like? And there's all kinds of brass there. There's executives and they start shooting off all these details about how many hand sanitizer bottles do we need? Are we going to be taking temperature at the door? How many hand masks? What department should we bring, bring back? And the thoughtful HR folks are saying things like, all right, hold on, pump the brakes. Instead of what going back to work looks like, which assumes that we should be trying to get back to work as fast as possible. Let's instead ask ourselves, what do we need to be back in the office for? What can we only accomplish as a business if we are all in the exact same place? And it's going to be different depending on your product or service. But for a lot of companies, I think they're kind of coming up blank. They're coming up with, well, I don't know, snacks, sack walls. Those those non-meeting meetings where you kind of like drive by someone's desk. Hey, quick question. How are those TPS reports doing? Yeah, exactly. I'll get you a copy of that memo. Yeah. And uh, usually the answer to that question is, well, we'll be more productive in the office. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if I buy that. There is some research that says that people are actually more productive at home. Mm-hmm. And if you believe your employees aren't productive when they're not being monitored, then you either hire children or your managers are totally bricking it, right? Also valid. Also valid. In any case, though, I would say 
conduct your own research. And that's what I'm hearing from folks. That's what, kind of what they're doing. They're first yeah. asking their managers if they think their team is more or less productive since working from home and then map it to business goals. Don't mm-hmm. give me your gut feeling. Let's look at yeah. what were your campaigns in flight? What are the products you were trying to ship? What are these metrics for output? Yeah. But let's remember, most teams don't have good productivity metrics. Like a good HRBP, what does a good HRBP look like? What does a good lawyer look like? Yeah, sales marketing, oh, that's easy to metric the heck out of them. For the rest of the people, it's really tough. Coders, is it lines of code? Is it products? I mean, it's, it's so hard to do that. I think that, you know, if you could like take it at like an Etch-a-Sketch table and you kind of shake it and go, okay, if we started from scratch, if you said we have to come back to work and come into a shared building and you put a, a little number next to that question about how much that costs you, yeah. you'd ha- if this was any other world, if this was any other budgetary line item, you would say, what in the heck do we get for doing that? And we just assume that that is table stakes. We have to have it and we have to come back to it. This is the opportunity to say, really? Are you sure? Because if it's $100,000 to rent that office, if it's $100,000, $200 million, whatever it is to claim that space as your own, someone in that really smart room is going to say, you know, if I had a million dollars, I would do And there's so many other opportunities for you to really push productivity, push your marketing, push your message, own the share of voice, own the product, whatever it is. Yeah, yeah. I think that to say it's an assumed that this is the first thing you'd spend your money on is absolutely ludicrous for most companies. Exactly right. And there is there is this built-in guilt, like you say, of whatever you're paying for rent in your office, you're now essentially wasting, right? I spoke to the CEO yeah. of a uh, of an investment company who was like, we're paying all this rent for this office and you know we're antsy to get back in. And I was like, dude, that can't be the reason. I, I call CEOs yeah. of financial companies dude, by the way. Uh, like yeah, that, sure. that has no sure. reason to get people back in the office. Their internal monologue is they think of themselves as dude, by the way, just so that's fully, completely Look, I'm just honest. speaking the language. It's corporate communication and it's finest. All right. I was, was a rhetoric major. This is, this is how you play the game. Uh, oh my God. A rhetoric major. I had no idea. I, that's amazing. And I, I know you're, you're asking yourself, what does that mean? Let's move on. <laughs> uh, but you're, you're, you're so right to bring up the point of what does productivity look like? How do you actually map that to some kind of metric? And there's all these vanity metrics to bring it back to recruitment. It's do your sourcers need to send a certain amount of emails? Yeah. But okay, I could send 2000 emails. And if they're not getting responded to, you don't care how many emails I sent, right? Yeah. Uh, so yeah. you have to be thoughtful about how you actually measure output department to department. And what I think is going to end up happening is that you're going to find that people are either just as productive maybe slightly less productive. And that was something that uh, the VP of HR over at Netflix brought up, which was, okay, we're we're in, like, sorry to use like the, now more than ever, we're in unprecedented times, but like we, we are, we are in. <laughs> Hold on, I got bingo. I got bingo for the you know, card. Quick, quick aside, my favorite one is like, now more than ever, it's important to risk your life by using our airline. By the way, we're proud to announce we are disinfecting our planes for the very first time. <laughs> what were you doing before? God help exactly. us all. <laughs> so there is this, we are in this unprecedented time. Sorry for saying that, but it's true. Mm-hmm. And even assuming you've employed a team of 100% self-starters who you could put into any situation and they would manage to do their job, there's going to be a dip in productivity just as a result of the, I mean, the listeners can't see this, but I'm just like vaguely gesturing at the everything all around me. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, we're yeah. all coping with the crisis in individual ways, uh, in personal ways as it affects us differently. 
And so I think there's just like this doom and anxiety affecting everyone. And I think there's like a baseline impact on everyone's ability to do good work. So my point is, if you are experiencing a perceived dip in productivity, perhaps it's not that everyone's working from home. Perhaps it's that the world's in turmoil. I think that's a completely valid assumption. The context has so radically shifted that it's hard to imagine. It's hard to compare apples to oranges in this case. It's just impossible to do. I think the real opportunity is that, let's be fair, what a, let's just go all the way back. The concept of what is a job has been slowly morphing and none of us have paid attention to it, right? The idea that you're a salesperson used to mean you make X number of phone calls, you make X number of sales calls, you do the thing, you check the box, you da, 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 da. If you're a surgeon, you do the checklist. If you're a marketer, you do the thing. You, there's a what the job is. Now today, as a marketer, and you know this better than anybody, what the job of a marketer is, is defined by you. Right? Is it right, doing podcasts? Is it writing articles? Is it making campaigns? You can do marketing in a million different ways. What you bring to the table is how you do marketing. What I bring to the table is how I do employer brand. What any salesperson does, they can, you know, you think of a salesperson as a, as a, as a role. Their job is not to put numbers into Salesforce, though sometimes it may feel that way. It's to create money. It's to bring money into the company that yeah. wasn't there before. Could you create an app that made people aware of what the company did and what the product was? Yes. Can you make a video about what the, how their clients love it? Yes. Could you uh, make a million phone calls? Yes. If you did all three of those things, are you a salesperson or are you a coder? Are you a videographer? Are you a content marketer? Are you a, what are you? And so the concept of what a job is has shifted. And if that's going to shift, that means the metrics or output metrics are, should be shifting too. I think what you're really seeing is if my entire world has flipped upside down and my job is vaguely fuzzily defined as to what my purpose and value is. It's on each individual to say, what am I going to do? How do I take this as an opportunity to do better work? Is it to slow down and to take my commute time and turn it into podcasts and exercise and I get to be a better person because of that? I get to be more productive in the eight to 10 hours I spend in front of a computer. Great. Is it to, hey, I'm going to work at night when I'm most creative. Great. Is it, what is the thing? And I think everybody's going to get the chance, at least higher thinking, higher level processing people get the chance to say, what the heck is my job and what am I doing and how do I do it and manipulate it such that it is maximizing my time for my company and so they can maximize their return to me. Exactly right. And we are confronted with that question as the artifice of work dissolves around us, right? As Yes. That's such a pretty way to say it, man. That was like, I think I talked for three minutes and you just went, it's this thing, artifice of work. I'm like, I love that. Because suddenly you don't have to be in an office at a certain period of time. You don't have to be at your computer looking like you're working, right? I had a, a VP of sales that I worked with one time. You used to love to say, are you working or are you just at work? And it was a joke, but the point is, are you 100% productive the entire time at, yeah. you're in an office? And no. more importantly, do you need to be? No. How long how, does your job take 40 hours a week? Uh, sorry, mine doesn't. Like I was in the office for 50 hours. My job probably took 25. Uh, and the other time is yeah. spent yeah. in between meetings, uh, you know, just, just doing work on that kombucha tap, telling yeah. time, looking productive, like, like looking like I'm working so that like yeah. I... Or you're being interrupted so many different times in a way your boss walks up to your cubicle. You're like, I have to stop everything I'm doing. My boss WhatsApps me. I can say, give me 10 minutes. It's not a big deal. Nobody's angry. No, the interruptions are completely yes. different. It's a very different situation. Yes. Absolutely. And so when, when you don't have those distractions, when you don't have this need to appear somewhere, when you don't have to devote two hours of your day 
coming and going from this office and and transitioning into and out of it you do have this opportunity mm -hmm. to reflect on what is the nature of my work how do i best get my job done it's certainly not a number of calls I have to make or things I have to log in Salesforce. You can be thoughtful about how you add value. I'd love to hear from people, you know, that's a survey question. It should be, look, once you got past the first two weeks of, oh, this is all weird and this is terrifying and what's going on and how does this work? Do people feel like they're being able to be more creative? Can they have that kind of weird idea and say, I'm going to reach out to, to Teddy over in that team way over there and say, would you be willing to help me on this crazy ass idea given we have a little more capacity? I'd love to see some sort of sense of, do people feel like they can do more creative, better, deeper work because of the new context? That research, maybe it exists out there. I haven't seen it yet, but I think the argument against it would go something like, well, that happens when you can like breeze by someone's desk or when you have one of those non-meeting meetings where you kind of wheel around in your chairs and you start talking about things for like seven minutes. Um, but the thing is, yeah, uh, I, I spoke with Chris Wynn, the CEO of Creative Market, and they're a fully remote company even before the pandemic. Yeah. And so he was like, how do we manufacture those kind of conversations? And they're still doing it. They were still managing to innovate and be creative about work problems, and they didn't have to yeah. all be in one location to do it. Yeah, if you see your creativity stems from that, you build systems around that and tool sets around that. I'm just thinking about the average employee who has a million things to do at some point, they have this idea, they have this thought of what if I teamed up with someone? What if I bounce something off somebody else? Um, you know, you've seen the data from was it Marcus Buckingham about people who feel confident and great places to work. Everybody feels like they have a partner or a work wife or a work husband, right? I think the digital space lets us kind of open that up. It's not just one person all the time that we feel partnered with. You get to open those kind of conversations up to a lot more people. And maybe I'm being Pollyannish about it. Maybe I'm just being, you know, naive about it. But I feel like I've gotten a chance to be more creative in that time because it's like, well, what if we did this? You know, let's me send that stupid email the second I thought of it. I said, Gabe, what do you think about that? And if he takes an hour or a day to come back to me and as he kind of percolates that, that's a better conversation than me swinging by his desk. Hey, Gabe, how you doing? Hey, I had this idea. And he has to stop everything he's doing. And he has to answer me and he's got to answer me quickly because he's got to get back to the work. I just, I just wonder if there's we're not, we can get beyond taking the change at face value, right? What's beyond what it is. Yeah. And now you're, you're tying into the virtue of asynchronous communication where it's, I can Absolutely. respond to this in my own time, which by the way, Slack isn't the answer to that because Slack is asynchronous communication that I have to respond to synchronously or else it's like, where's Rob? Uh, yeah. and, but yeah, yeah, like not being pushed out of my focus and flow state and actioning things for later allows me to devote actual time to it. I do yeah. wonder though, the long-term effects of working from home. And someone pointed out to me that for someone who lives in a, in a dense, densely populated area like New York or San Francisco, working from home is a significant reduction in quality of life for young Absolutely. workers, especially. When you think Absolutely. about how young people live. As an example, I was making a pretty competitive salary in San Francisco. I had four roommates and that's normal. That's just how we live. Yeah. And I, I don't live like that anymore because mm -hmm. I moved to Los Angeles. But like I'm imagining trying to work affordable Los Angeles. That's funny. So much more affordable. <laughs> it's, it's like the second most expensive place. So it's like a, such a deal. Yeah, exactly. But I think about how would yeah. I possibly be doing work in a, a small apartment with all these other people? Like I wouldn't be able to do it sharing the same Wi-Fi and it, and just not being able to go into a place that feeds me, that has a space for me to do work, that has other people who I get to interact with in a personal way uh, and just like yeah. the long-term effects of that. And now it's just like an economic question. It's like, all right, well, if it's long-term work from home and suddenly 
all these companies are paying people who live close to their former headquarters. If they aren't coming into an office, then why hire them in in San Francisco? Why not hire them in Akron, Ohio? And have you seen that Zuckerberg's already announced that if you don't live in San Francisco, you're probably not going to make San Francisco pay scales anymore. He's literally giving people a pay cut if they live in Boulder yeah, or if they live in wherever. It, exactly. That's, it does. Yeah, yeah. It makes and more you're, sense. You're paid market for the market that you're in. But then it's like, well, we don't have to hire people in San Francisco anymore, right? We can get the same level talent yeah. across the across the country in a much cheaper way. Oh, I think it's better. I think if you're trying to, let's be fair. Look, in San Francisco, you got Googles and Facebooks and Apples, and you know you are of the giants of the tech industry throwing money as if they've printed it. Which, by the way, they have. You know, everybody else is competing for third-rate talent. Now, go to Madison, Wisconsin. Go to New Orleans. Go to any place that you know you can get for less than that amount of money. You can get top-tier talent there. You just have to go and be in a place that is not the obvious place to look. And I think that's that's also going to shift things. Yeah. I wonder if that economic pressure will result in companies not wanting to work from home because, okay, we can start hiring people across the country, but then like, does our city fall apart? Yeah. So interestingly enough, I've had this conversation with a lot of people in my office, you know, office bunny ears, um, you know, cause it's the WhatsApp group that we ch- chat about this stuff. So for those of you who are old enough to remember when the internet really stuck, like just before 2000, when the money was starting to flow in and people had actual this thing called broadband and it wasn't dial up, people said, well, why wouldn't I move to Idaho? Why wouldn't I move to middle of nowhere? And there was a talk about the whole nomad culture, what we what became the nomad culture spawned from that idea. But the truth is most people didn't want to move to Idaho because it was still Idaho. And you compare Idaho, and there's nothing wrong with Idaho. If you love Idaho, that's great, but you're not choosing between Idaho and Chicago. You're not choosing between Idaho and San Francisco. You're choosing between Idaho yeah. and Iowa. And those are the so people didn't want to go there because they were losing nightlife and culture and movies and 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 except today. Not just Netflix, not just Hulu, not just Spotify, but really, if I can't go into a movie theater because of there's a virus that keeps me from going there, what the heck would I live in a big city for? Now, I'm in Chicago, so I have this conversation with myself on a semi-regular basis. Maybe this is the thing that makes the megalopolises of these cities start to decay a little bit to say, look, you can work anywhere and be happy and successful because, frankly, you can't be in a room and party at Lala anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly right. You have to accept, though, that like this is not permanent, that there will be a time when there are concerts and sporting events and et cetera, et cetera, and restaurants like available. To I don't you. know. I mean, it's not going to be never. Like, it's, it's, it's... I, I don't know. I think what, okay, now this is me going super full on, you know, megatrends thinking. If we do a year without a virus and we all learn to build in brand new habits of this work from home, small social groups, it's your family, it's your handful of people that you know that you live in a circle where you're like, okay, I know they're not wandering at the bar and getting coughed on. I don't know that we swing back from that. I think we build ingrained habits that we say this is the new normal. This is the actual thing we want, that we find these valuable things we get to do that we couldn't do before. You know, if you get to live in the middle of nowhere, Illinois, instead of Chicago, everything's cheaper and that includes the food and that includes the booze and that includes everything. And, you know, you get to build different habits and hobbies. You get to start a hobby in which you have a room dedicated to your hobby. I can't afford a room dedicated to my hobby. Uh, There's no way I can't afford my own office. I live in my dining room, right? It's like, things, you know, it's the, when the structural stuff starts to shift, when people start to invest in that, like you remember years ago when you started to see that uh, ethernet was standard in new house buildings for like a hot second before Wi-Fi took that over. It's like, once those structural changes happen, coming back from that's really hard. 
So I wonder, there's going to be a deflation on cities across the board, assuming a virus doesn't land in like the next 20 minutes. Yeah. Uh, you mean vaccine? Um, yes. Thank you. <laughs> no new viruses. Yeah. Oh no. <laughs> we have, we've had plenty. Uh, yes, yeah, good. I, I have to, I have to believe that like whatever period of time it takes, like cities will open back up and the people who have chosen the megalopolis, as you said, we're aware mm -hmm. of how much houses cost in Des Moines, Iowa. It's not like yeah. this is this is news to us. Like, yeah, a million dollars in Iowa gets you, you know, a moat and a drawbridge, mm -hmm. which is great, and it gets you a parking spot in San Francisco. The reasons that you live in a city, I believe, will have to come back to you. I do wonder though, like, say that say that work from home does stick. A couple mm -hmm. companies have committed to there's not gonna be a date where we say you have to come back in the office, but people will start to trickle back in over time. They'll get more comfortable with it. Yeah. And maybe the answer is just companies are more are more accepting of it. One day a week, two days a week. One day a week, two days yeah. a week. But I do think of what are the long-term effects of a work-from-home culture? Uh, and I, I see things like a lack of camaraderie and friendship among workers. Yeah. Yes, I can ping someone from another department about this cool idea I had, but we can't walk and go get coffee together. We can't, uh, we can't have lunch together. We yeah. can't joke around in the office like we would. And so you have weaker connections that work wife, that work best friend thing is yeah. going to dwindle, which to me is like, okay, you have less loyalty to your company. You're less likely to want to yeah. slog through the bullshit. Yeah. For me, like I'm sure you've been in situations. I know I have where I thought work was really, really terrible, but I stuck with it because I cared about the individuals who I worked with. They were my friends. I wanted yeah. to see them succeed. I wanted yeah. to see them get happy. And so we all towed the line together and figured mm -hmm. it out and plowed through it. In a world where I'm not really friends with my coworkers and I don't particularly care about their happiness, I'm just going to be like, all right, next company, please. Right. Yeah. Uh, so I, I see higher turnover being a result of that. And again, like we should look at data from companies who have been fully remote and see like, do they experience higher turnover? The trouble is if they do, they're probably not likely to be publishing it. That's probably <laughs> no. not, a, that's not, that's not a white paper. They want to, <laughs> they, they want to publish. Don't do this. Yeah, exactly <laughs> right. No, but the other part of it, where if you work from home and I get to work and, and my home office is technically in Stockholm, Sweden, as I'm in Chicago, if I can work for a company that's based out of Stockholm, I can work for a company based in Chicago and New York or Alaska or ta Taiwan, right? Which means I can look for a job anywhere in the globe, which, you know, so it is that double-edged sword where I can look for a job anywhere and the company can look for talent anywhere. And so I think there's an interesting process where, yes, I think you're probably – they almost certainly right that without those human connections, those relationships that drive the ability to, to, to slog through the crap, um, you are going to see some, I, I would imagine you are going to see some turnover because suddenly new companies that I thought were out of my league or I, I didn't want to move to San Francisco to talk to them, they might be pinging me and I might be having conversations. But I wonder for like a recruiter or a sourcer, if you have the entire world from which you can hire people, yeah. how does that change their process? Yeah. How does that change how they see the world? Yes. And I'm glad you pointed that out because people on Twitter have been saying this. Sorry for just <laughs> quoting these, these anonymous individuals. But the take is that what are all these mediocre tech workers going to do when suddenly they have to compete with not just yeah. everyone who decided to go to this coastal elite city, when they have mm. to compete with a global talent pool. And the answer to that is companies are competing with global companies now. Now you're no longer just competing with the offices in your in your city. I can look anywhere too. So it's just it's just way more options for both people. And I mean, mediocre folks are gonna get work no matter what. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, you gotta put bodies in the space. But I think, you know, as you start to remove the barriers between change and shifting companies and shifting roles, what happens is you do there's a congregation, right? It's a long tail effect, which by the way, the balance of that is the tall head effect, right? There's five companies and they're going to hire 
all the best people, no matter where they are. And then there's going to be a real quick drop off to everybody else. And I think that's the terrifying part. And as much as I value and use Amazon and Netflix and Google and all those massive, massive, you know, I've got an iPhone, it's right here. I, they have all my money, so I can't say anything too bad about them. I'm also nervous that it's five or six companies or maybe 20 companies that are the companies to work for. And then there's everybody else. You get back to that Kaibatsu kind of, you know, tribal thinking that dominated Japan in the 80s and 90s, which, you know, was great in, you know, short term, horrible long term. I, like, I, I think that is a concern for me as well. Wait, what is Kibatsu? Kibatsu is, so in Japan, what happens is, is you are working for, let's say Samsung. And as a car company, you were partnered with these other non non-industry companies so maybe it's Toshiba and then it's maybe it's Sharp and those were in your kaibatsu and that's your your grouping which means as a person who worked for Samsung you were expected to buy that kind of car and that kind of TV and that kind of radio so functionally they were different companies but they clustered together so there really were only four or five of those let's call them teams that you played on and you bought your you know your, yeah. So if you were a Sony person, you had a Toyota. And if you were a, a Samsung person, you had a Honda or whatever. And I'm making you know the particulars. So you're an employer slash consumer and you join a faction in, yes. in which you can exercise all of those. Deeply feudal, deeply tribal, which, like I said, short term thinking was incredibly strong in a global market. But the downside is, let's be fair, for the last 15 years, they've been, you know, a slow, slow decline, which and that's part of it. Yeah. So assuming we're able to avoid that sort of hegemonic dystopia. Uh, and we're going to be sourcing from a global talent pool, but still working from home. You don't have that internal camaraderie, maybe as much. You don't have those work best friends. You certainly don't have the snack wall. When you are trying to- You love a snack I, wall. What, it, it, something amazing happened to you by a snack wall. It's just, it's stuck I, with well, you. I'm, the, the answer is that I, when I ask myself the question, what am I missing by not co-locating? It's cliff bars. <laughs> And and nature box, I realize they exist, but come on. Yeah, no, they just show up magically. It's like, oh, hey, look, they have bars. Great. If if you start a podcast, you start getting nature box. Is how, is how that works. <laughs> All right. So, like I said, that is just part one of a very goofy, interesting, fun, rambling conversation about the state of the industry and the state of the future of the industry. If you want to hear part two, there should be a link in the show notes by now. If not, just go to Talk Talent to Me, and it should be right there. We're trying to release these things on the same day. So, thank you so much for listening, and uh, maybe we'll get to the usual way of doing things next week. Week. Who's to say? I'll talk to you next week. Bye. This has been an episode of the Talent Cast, part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. If you'd like to get in touch with me, a couple ways to do that. Obviously, there's Twitter at The War for Talent. You can go to the podcast website at thetalentcast.com. If you'd like to stay up to date on the news of this industry and what's going on, just go to employerbrand.news and sign up for the email newsletter with lots of news and links to other places. If you just want to connect with me on LinkedIn and just say hello or Let's just talk. That's linkedin.com slash in slash the war for talent. Or I bet if you just search for James Ellis, I'd pop up pretty quick. Otherwise, if you have any questions, concerns, considerations, ideas for podcasts, holler at me. Let me know what's going on. Thank you if you've shared it. Please share if you haven't. Rate us, review us. I love all that stuff. It really does help kind of keep the message going and get the message out there. Thanks again, and uh, we'll see you next week. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, 
robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.